Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we have a really exciting podcast on our big new Unlock polling project. I am very happy to be coming to you with an all-star cast to talk about this enormous polling project that we've done with 11,000 citizens in nine countries across Europe that cover two-thirds of the EU's population. In alphabetical order, I'm going to start with Ismaël Emilien, who is council member of ECFR, co-founder of En Marche, and was formerly advisor on strategy to the French president Emmanuel Macron, and is author of the wonderful book, The New Progressivism, A Grassroots Alternative to the Populism of Our Times. Second up is Lika Fries, who is co-chair of ECFR, but also the director of the Danish think tank Europa, which has been one of the partners in this Unlock polling and been involved both in shaping all the questions, but also bringing to life what these things mean in, in one of the big frugal countries in Europe, in Denmark. And third up is Ivan Krestev, who uh, is one of the fanning board members of ECFR, He's chair of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, which is another partner on this project through their European Futures series. So we will put up a link to the first publication out of this project at our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And the poll that we're talking about tries to explore how the pandemic has changed European citizens' views on politics, on society, on Europe's place in the world. And we've gone into three big sort of areas where there's been a lot of debate about what the crisis has changed at national and an international level, looking at how the crisis has changed people's attitudes towards the state, looking at how it has changed people's attitudes towards expertise and whether we're entering a new period where politics is about facts and persuasion rather than emotions and mobilization. And thirdly, and most importantly for ECFR, how it's changing the way that people think about the world, what it means for the European project. So Ivan, you and I have just written this paper looking at Europe's pandemic politics, seeing what has changed and what hasn't changed. Do you want to start with a brief summary of of some of the main findings and then we can go into more detail under those three different headings that I mentioned? I'll do it with pleasure, but I'll try to be brief because otherwise people are not going to read the paper. No, listen, there was many questions that came out of the pandemics. And of course, one is how much it is changing the world, but the other is how much it has allowed us to see how the world has been changed. And during the pandemics, the public mood, the public opinion were not the major player because everything was in the hands of the government that had to respond. But now we are seeing very much that with the developing of the crisis from a public health crisis, much more to economic crisis, the public mood is going to play a very important role. So when we went through the data, basically four things that I kind of want to share at the beginning of this conversation. First, well, the role of the government and the state has been incredibly increased for the last hundred days. There was a major kind of expectations, and I have read a lot of comments saying this was on demand, people had the huge expectations, people were reassured by the capacity of the nation state. And the truth is that this is true in some countries, for example, Denmark, but at the end of the day, it appeared that as a result of this crisis, there are more Europeans who are much more questioning the capacity of the nation states 
to act in a situation like this than the number of those who basically were reassured that their nation state is going uh, to do well. And to be honest, France is one of these countries, so I'm going to be very much interested. Ismail is going to basically interpret this. The second uh, commonplace was that because of this crisis, because people have been religiously following the briefs of the medical doctors, because there was a medical doctor next to every prime minister or president during this crisis, there was a general feeling that the trust in expertise has been restored and contrary to what happened during the global financial crisis, now people basically start trusting experts. Unfortunately, our data does not really prove that this was the case. We have three groups of people, those who trust experts and science in general, those who do not trust science because they don't trust science because scientists disagree between themselves. And while for many of us, this is how the science works, many people believe that if there are two different opinions of experts, so then we should not trust experts. But the very important is the third group, which in general basically trust experts and trust that basically science can produce a valuable policy knowledge, but at the same time, they had the feeling that in the time of pandemic, the experts have been misused by governments, instrumentalized. It's not that the experts were shaping policies, it's much more that the experts have been justifying policies. For me, and I do believe, Mark, it was the same for you, the most interesting result of this survey was the fact that while people as we said, were quite ambitious about the performance of the government. While the people were quite uh, critical about the performance of the European Union, in a certain way, the European institutions, for many people, have been the big absent during this initial stage of the crisis. Then you end up with a very strong majority who said, as a result of this crisis, we believe that there is no much need for more European cooperation. And the question is where this kind of a drive for more European cooperation, if not a deeper integration, comes at the moment in which European Union was not particularly present and impressive during this crisis. And this comes very much what Europeans saw as the world outside of Europe. As the result of this crisis, I do believe Europe experienced its hungry days of solitude. We saw ineffective multilateral institutions. Big part of the Europeans also saw a different face of China much more aggressive, much more interested in influence than in basically achieving common goals. And also there was a major collapse of the image of the United States. And part of it probably was President Trump and the American absence as a global leader. But part of it was also the failure of the United States to deal with the pandemics. So we ended this strange situation in which we do not have a federalist moment. It's not that people basically trust European Union and distrust their nation states. But strangely enough, the major dividing line between the nationalists and pro-Europeans that we have been seeing in all previous crises have been blurred. And now there is a very strong feeling that only consolidation of Europe, making Europe a community of faith, is the only way for the Europeans to be relevant to the world of tomorrow. So I'll stop here. Great. Thank you very much. So I'd like to go through all of each of those three things. And I think it's particularly interesting to have Luca and Ismail there because Denmark and France are at opposite ends of the spectrum on a lot of these questions. But before we go into the specifics, I wonder whether you, uh, Ismail and Luca, have got any other general kind of things that you took from the polling. I think on a general perspective, what I take away from this really interesting uh, survey is that Europeans have experienced firsthand over the last couple of months all the weaknesses and loopholes of our systems that they've been 
talking about, uh, hearing about, fingering towards for the last uh, decade or so. And when uh, things become a matter of life and death, either on the health front or in the forthcoming month on the economic and social front, I think it, it makes the political debate and even the, the social debate shift from a debate about the ends, i.e. federalism, for instance, when it comes to Europe, uh, towards a debate around the means. And what I, I think what the, the, the bottom line of the survey for me is that they want results. They want to be protected because it's a crisis and they feel threatened and they want to see people getting results. I think that's the reason, the underlying reason of pretty much all the illusions you've been uh, listing because they don't really care whether it's uh, the state that should provide results or not. They expect results. So if they were uh, experiencing results coming from elsewhere, from the civil society itself or corporates or whatever, I'm pretty sure they'd be strongly in favor of a more corporate uh, approach of, of politics. That's my main on the survey. Luca, what, what do you think? Well, I think that it's very interesting that the European Union, which was missing in action, still ends up having such a high percentage of Europeans and saying that we need more European solutions. But I think the word their solution and cooperation is vital. Because, as was already mentioned also by Ivan, I don't see any kind of sort of federalist uh, moment. I see more Europe of results and almost also Europe of desperation. Now we need somehow to protect ourselves, which is, a, you could say, a, a very sort of a new phenomenon also seen from this country. Because in this country, we've always looked upon the European integration very much as an economic sort of exercise. Now, suddenly, it's about survival. Secondly, I think a very important conclusion of out of this uh, analysis is that uh, there is still support for climate change. Personally, you could have thought that climate change was an issue that would now have been put on the back burner uh, now that we have the big sort of corona and health crisis. But there, apparently, the results show us that there is great support still, actually, for having a, a major sort of green deal within the European Union. I think that is also an important message for the politicians to come. Is it worth just spending a minute or two on these questions of the state and expertise? Because I think the French and the Danish results are quite in quite different places on both of those two issues. I think they both showed was that there is a link between how people feel about the state and felt about the state going into the crisis and how they feel about it coming out of the crisis. So in France, President Macron had been through quite a difficult period, to put it mildly, with the gilets jaunes and big backlash and sense of disappointment before the crisis even started. The crisis has, has not made that any worse. In some ways, he's come out, I think, in a slightly better place. But it hasn't led to a kind of massive rallying around the, the flag that you have seen in other countries. Whereas in, in Denmark, I think the, the government was still in its honeymoon when the crisis erupted and, and has come out even stronger. Do you, do you both think that that's the, the right way of reading the figures on experts and the role of the state in your respective countries? Yes, definitely with a couple of additional remarks. Uh, first, I think to understand what's going on in France and what has been going on over the last couple of months, you need to, to go further back in the past because for more than a decade now, French people have been fed up with the inefficiency of the states and of politics and of policies uh, as a whole. And one should always remember that in the first round of the 2017 presidential election, more than 45% of the voters chose either Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the far left or Marine Le Pen on the far right. And this is still there for the better part. And so everything is to be uh, read through that uh, grid of uh, analysis. And second, 
I think this is a, a crisis that is, is still undergoing and will be for uh, the next couple of months uh, at least. And we had a terrible entry in the crisis in terms of, uh, of, uh, of policies uh, with uh, problems that uh, every other state throughout the world have experienced, but maybe uh, with an increased intensity in France because we happened to have had a stock of one billion masks uh, 10 years ago, and those were destroyed five years ago uh, for uh, budget consideration. And so the fact of knowing that we had them and we destroyed them and we didn't have any uh, when the crisis uh, started was a massive uh, trigger of uh, dissatisfaction in the population. And second, as the crisis unfolds, things are getting slightly better and the support for the government, for the president, is increasing weeks after weeks. And the way the easing of the lockdown has been handled so far, and I'm really cautious, is to the satisfaction of a large majority of the French people. So we have a saying in French, and actually it was President Chirac that used to say so, and pardon my French, and I'll roughly translate, but it says it's at the end of the cattle fair that you need to count all the dunks. And I think we are far from the end of the cattle fair. Yeah, no, in the English equivalent is that it's not over till the fat lady sings. But it's strangely uh, more... Watch out now, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so coming from Copenhagen, what's your kind of take on those on those figures about belief in the state and experts? Well, just to continue on, on, on the metaphor, I think we all need to go on a diet after, after the corona crisis with all the lockdown. And no, on a more serious note, um, well, I mean, I think crisis is an amplifier. So basically in Denmark, you had a high trust in government, high trust in experts before the crisis hit us. And well, after the crisis, you've basically seen an increase sort of in support for government and also support for experts. So from that perspective, it's been an amplifier. So it's not maybe that surprising at the end of the day that uh, we simply now see a, a very strong sort of uh, also prime minister who's really also gone up in the opinion polls, rally around the flag has very much been a phenomenon in Denmark. However, I think one will have to add here that the timing of the survey could play a role because that was sort of at the beginnings of when you really had a feeling that this was a huge crisis also for Denmark. Now we can sort of see the end of the tunnel. So that could possibly sort of also change the way people look upon the handing of the government because we've had for the last weeks a very strong debate on whether we should open our borders. And that has been a rather sort of chaotic exercise where Denmark has been far more restrictive than other countries and where the, we haven't really sort of heard the governments of saying that it's been based on the uh, advice of experts. So it's been now concern, I mean, how much politics has now sort of taken over our overall sort of fight against uh, COVID-19. And then I think there's also now a concern that the government is actually too strong. There's sort of a saying here that we should have our democracy back simply, that we should stop all these emergency laws and parliament should play a much bigger role. So we are seeing a bit of, a, of, you could say, a backlash against all these emergency laws now that we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Sorry, I, I, I forgot to answer on the science and expert thing. Well, and not, not to try and find ourselves uh, excuses here in France, but it so happened that we had one Nobel Prize winner in medicine saying exactly the opposite of one of the biggest experts in virology, which happened to be French also, Dr. Raoult, and made the France the epicenter of the world debate slash scandal over chloroquine. And so mm. that set everybody in wonder of what was really happening with experts in sciences, with people that had the 
utmost credentials saying exactly the opposite of one another. Yeah, no, that goes right into what where Ivan was starting with, with the different sources of, of mistrust of experts. I feel now privileged that we don't have a Nobel Prize winners in Bulgaria. <laughs> <laughs> so should we pivot to the international then? So Ivan and Luca and, and Ismail were talking about the kind of nature of this European moment that people feel that they want protection, they want results, they don't really care how it happens. But it was very striking how much people's worldview seems to have changed as a result of the the crisis, this sense of abandonment, the total collapse in perceptions of both the United States, that only less than 6% of people in Italy thought that the US was there to help them. And that was the most, the country felt most helped by the, by the United States, but also a big collapse in terms of how people saw China. What does this mean in terms of the opportunity for, for making a, a case for, for Europe in the future, Ivan? Listen, there is something interesting. When people basically went back to their homes, suddenly they understand that we're living in a common world. People that have been never basically interested very much in other parts of the world, suddenly start to compare what is happening in their country with what is happening all over because for these two months, we have been really living in a common world. It was about how many infected people you have here, how many people were dying there. And then I do believe two things impressed Europeans incredibly. One is that this is a type of crisis pandemic where you can expect that it's going to be easier to have coordinated international response. And this response didn't come. And basically, the trust of the World Health Organization did not increase as a result of this crisis. And secondly, you basically see for a long time, I do believe Europeans were trying to pretend that many of the trends that have been already there, what we see with the coming of President Trump, with the intensifying of the Chinese-American rivalry, that all this is kind of a marginal phenomenon and the world is going to be back where we used to remember it. And now we understood that this is over, that we're living in a totally new world. And in this new world, the winners are not going to be simply political systems or countries, but very much regions. And in this world, Europeans are really very much threatened of being totally irrelevant. And the only way to have any relevance is consolidation of European Union. So from this point of view, this is not the dream of a closer European integration that pushed people to believe that we need more cooperation. This is just a kind of a natural self-defense. Ismail, you're a political strategist. If you kind of look at the data and you were advising Emmanuel Macron and other leaders about what lessons they should draw from it in terms of finding support for for European action and what kinds of things might resonate? What sort of things do you think they should be thinking about? Well, I I think that European political leaders have been targeting for years a mandate from the European people uh, about the sovereignty of Europe. And I think it's now clear that they had it all the time and it's uh, only even clearer now after after the, the three months of lockdown. On the second front, I think that the the agreement between Germany and France on the funding of the 750 billions and the mutualization of the debt is key because it unlocks capacity for Europe to really fund initiatives and, and protections. So that being said, I think it's very clear that people expect results for the next uh, couple of years. And 
especially I would think in two different directions, different but uh, consistent with one another. First would be in terms of economic and health uh, sovereignty. And it was really, at least for the French people, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a, a shared feeling. It was really uh, outrageous to discover how dependent we are from the outside world, even uh, for uh, aspirin or very basic uh, medicine. The same thing can uh, be said about car makers or, or whatever. I, guess. I read a, um, an interview from a car industry tycoon saying that he was unable to list all the countries involved in the production of a very simple car. And so when things go wrong in one place, everything goes to the bathroom. And uh, when it goes wrong everywhere at the same time, then it's a, it's a disaster. The second direction, and I was really uh, agreeing with what Lika said earlier, is uh, the protection of the, of the environment and everything uh, climate change related. I think we have a big an opportunity and it's also a moral imperative to uh, move forward much faster much deeper much stronger in that direction and we need to uh, uh, you know ex ex exercise some uh, judo over the crisis and try and funnel all the destruction and all the changes that are going to happen whatever in the right direction and i think there is room and space and a mandate there for some kind of a progressive leapfrogging meaning that in the world before we thought we would need, uh, I don't know, 10 years to go from 1 to 100. I think we can go to 1 to 50 in two years' time now. And there is both uh, the necessity and the mandate to do so. And Luca, what, what do you think, particularly in Denmark? Because, I mean, Denmark is one of the toughest places to make the case for any sort of European action other than opt-outs traditionally. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me about sort of the frugal four. Uh, no, I think, I mean, what's really interesting when one looks upon the various figures here, I think also in Denmark, there's now this fear that uh, we could end up as a traffic victim in the chicken race between the United States of America and China. Because if you look upon also what the Danes have been answering in this survey, I mean, 70% say that, well, they have lost trust in the United States of America. This is a very transatlantic nation that we have here. So these are very interesting figures and obviously also disappointment with China. And that sort of suddenly puts the European Union, although we are very pragmatic here, in a position where it's almost the only show in town. But there, I think it's very important that one does not sort of fall into the trap of using expressions like the Hamilton moment, indicating this should now be a federal moment for the European Union, because that will truly not convince anybody. But using arguments, if one looks, looks at the study about sort of the new global situation, the G0 world, and in particular also climate change, these will be some arguments that could actually play a role also in, in the run-up uh, to the uh, difficult negotiations uh, on the uh, recovery fund. But the overall sort of idea that this should be a federal movement just triggers a debate about, well, that it's only ideology. Again, it's more or less integration for integration's sake. And I don't think that's the core conclusion when one reads the study. On the contrary, actually, because we have people who are disappointed, who are disillusioned, and you don't convince them by talking about a Europe of institutions. It has to be a Europe of results. Maybe end with you, Ivan, because we talked a lot about the frugal four and the northern countries and, and about France, who being a kind of cheerleader for not just 
the sort of South, but also for a new moment of Franco-German leadership. How do these arguments play out in Central and Eastern Europe? Is that East-West divide something which has become structural or is that something which we might leave behind now as we move out of the refugee crisis and into the post-corona recovery? Listen, in Eastern Europe, for reasons that probably we're going to learn later, we were relatively lucky at this moment with the spread of the virus. We didn't have uh, scenes that we saw from Italy or Spain. But also on the other side, the crisis is not over. And people in our part of the world are very much aware of the vulnerability of our public health system. So one of the things that is happening in Eastern Europe is that If there is no federalist moment in the West, believe me, this is even less the federalist moment in the East. But what shocked East Europeans, in fact, is what is happening in the United States. And I do believe that uh, many East European leaders that have been seeing the European politics as very much the way to try to get much more sovereignty out of Brussels, start to understand that in the absence of Brussels, we're going to have even less sovereignty. So I can imagine that there are going to be a major also divides and East Europeans are afraid that the money will go to the South, not to the East. And there are going to be a lot of petty politics. But geopolitically, East Europeans are where all Europeans are. If we're not going to stay together, we don't have any chance to make a difference. Okay, well... We are going to carry on trying to work through what this means in in practice. We've got our ongoing project on European strategic sovereignty, which we've got a number of papers over the next few weeks. The next one is actually looking at the idea of health sovereignty, which we'll launch at ECFR's annual council meeting next week. And we'll also be producing a number more publications and articles which come out of the, the data from the Unlock project. But we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. Look at what's on your bookshelf at the moment. Well, I don't think it's a huge surprise what I'm reading at the moment, because what do you do when you follow European politics and a new book comes out by Ivan Kastev? That's obviously the book you have to read. So that's the one I just downloaded over the weekend. Is it tomorrow yet? Paradoxes of the pandemic. It's a great read. I'm halfway through it. I can only recommend it because I think all of us have been struggling in the various lockdowns where we have been sort of in figuring out what will actually happen to Europe and how does this change us. And I think that Ivan has some very sort of thought-provoking answers. Ivan, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Have you had any time to read or have you just... Now I, uh, I now like the conversation even more. Uh, in this, uh, in the last two months, I was so much involved in writing it that I forget reading. Okay. And what about you, Ismail? Well, I'm finishing uh, The Uncontrollability of the World by Hartmut Rosa, which is a great German sociologist and thinker. And he tries and give an answer to the crisis he developed in his previous book, Acceleration. And it's a way of linking both personal and social and environmental issues in a very convincing way. I recommend it to anybody and everybody that is willing to understand what's going on at every level. Great. And I, I'm going to recommend to show that log rolling is not dead. I'll recommend your book. Um, so the new progressivism, a grassroots alternative to the populism of our times is by Ismail and his colleague, uh, David Daniel, and it's been translated into English now. And 
gives you a recipe for thinking about how to create a new politics out of the sort of extreme volatility that we've seen in recent periods as a lot of the old uh, political structures have, have come under pressure. That brings us to the end of the podcast. As I said, we'll put up links to all the things that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do write about it on your social media page or ours. And above all, head to the platform that you use to download this podcast and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. But for now, from Ismail Emilien, Luca Fries, Ivan Krestov, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halperstad, and our editor is Marlene Rieden. Mm-hmm.